I don't know whether any of you school children can relate to this, but if there was any morning of the week I hated, it was Monday morning. I absolutely hated going back to school and facing that week again. And uh, it always seemed to me, and I never knew if it was perception or real, but it seemed to me that teachers were grumpier on Monday morning. It just seemed like if there was going to be issues, it was going to be Monday morning. So I never liked Monday mornings. I hated victory drill and flashcards. I hated that whole that pressure, that timing pressure. just did me in. In fact, my second grade teacher finally caught on to that, and she would pretend she wasn't timing me, but she would be. And if, and if I thought she wasn't, I could get it done in the minute, you know. But if I was, if I was under pressure, I couldn't do it. I remember when I was around seven years old, I had a couple of traumatic things in my life. I had a brother that lived only a few hours and passed away. And I had a cousin that was lost in a house fire. That was troubling. Um, that uh, the whole event, that day after the fire event, is burned in my memory. I'll never forget that. I remember going to Bible school the first time. That was even a little troubling, you know. I sensed that last night, you know, there was a little bit of this apprehension, you know, what, who is this cockeyed guy beside me here, you know. Anyway, on it goes. There's, there's things that trouble us. And it does seem that if there's one constant in the world, it is trouble. If one looks at world history, it is littered with trouble. Wars to beat the band. Um, imagine living during the Civil War in the Shenandoah Valley. That's trouble. Imagine living in Europe during World War II, World War I. Lots of trouble. Imagine living in Syria today if you're a Christian. That's trouble. One of the parts of the curse is trouble. If you look at Genesis 3, 16 and 17... This is how it reads. It says, Unto the woman, he said, this is God speaking, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. That word sorrow could actually be interpreted worry. I will greatly increase your worry and your conception. And in sorrow, and that word sorrow should and could be translated pain. In pain you will bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. That's part of the curse. Your desire, you will want, women, you will want to be who your husband is. And if you look in the world today, that is a huge part of the trouble in our marriage. The whole feminist movement, huge part of it. And unto Adam, he said, because you have hearkened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow or in worry and anxiety, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Now, can you imagine if Adam and Eve had just been content to leave that tree alone and not be beguiled by that serpent? Think of all the things that they would have saved themselves. Childbirth would have been a breeze. Raising children would have been a picnic. They would have never had to worry about an unfaithful spouse or a wayward child or weeds in the field. Those things would have all been taken care of. There's one thing I want to point out here real quick. Work is not part of the curse. He was told, Adam was told, to keep that garden, to dress and to keep it, before there was a curse. So never get the idea that work is a curse. Work is actually not part of the curse. That's good for us. 
Going back to Job, um, Eliaphaz and Job did agree on one thing. Eliaphaz says to Job in verse in uh, Job five seven, he says, "Yet man is born unto trouble, as the sparks fly upward. The two are the same. If you're a man, you will have trouble." And Job agrees. In Job fourteen, he says, "Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble." The man understood trouble. The reasons for troubled hearts are most times pretty similar. The circumstances always seem out of our control, and so that troubles our hearts. They seem to be something we cannot control. The outcome of the events are uncertain, and so... Of course, we tend to think that they're potentially undesirable. And perhaps they are. Probably more of the reasons for a troubled heart, one more reason, is our confidence in God's sovereignty tends to be under question. In our weakest moments, I believe we succumb to thinking that God is not, after all, in control of our lives. Or if he is, he's a pretty poor administrator. I think another thing that gets us sometimes is we tend to be short-sighted and we live in the moment. That's where we are. We're in this moment. And we forget that the eternal God is our refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. It's this problem we have right now and it troubles me. Let's flip back to John 13. I'm going to run through this chapter. I'm not going to read it because I don't have time. But the context of Jesus' comfort in John 14 lies in John 13. And as I read through John 13, there is plenty in this chapter for these disciples to be troubled about. And I want to just run through them quickly here and just have you think along with me what all was troubling these disciples. So there's a very familiar part of this in the first part of chapter 13 that we read at every communion time. The uh, whole uh, foot washing um, uh, thing that took place here. And I don't think we, we stop to consider just how this might have troubled the, uh, the disciples. We don't think of that so much. But think about it. They had just witnessed an event that made absolutely no sense. So I assume that when Jesus and his disciples came to the upper room, um, nobody had a servant. Nobody felt like a servant. So they figured, forget the feet tonight. We're just going to sit down, have supper. We're not going to do the whole foot washing thing. Well, then at some point, um, Jesus decides he's going to wash everybody's feet. And I truly believe that these disciples probably saw that as a, an oversight on their part. Why didn't I think about washing feet? Why didn't I do that? Why did I wait till Jesus did that? And then when I, you know, I was probably too embarrassed to tell him that I would do it instead of him or to offer. Um, did you ever, have you ever been embarrassed about a poor judgment call that you've made? You know, and, and when you reflect on something or a situation, you're like, what? And what was I thinking? What was wrong here? And I really would think that troubled the disciples. It troubled Peter so much that he said, you're not doing it to me. 
He said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that. Well, they said, give me a bath. He said, no, no, we're just going to wash feet here. I, I think that just troubled, troubled Peter and the rest of them. What was I thinking? Where was my judgment? Look at uh, verses 10 and 11. So when Jesus is washing feet here, he's giving them a little exposition on what's happening. He said, you're clean, but not all. And then John gives some commentary. He says, for he knew who should betray him. Therefore, he said, ye are not all clean. Now, you imagine yourself there in this upper room. And we all feel like we're kind of friends. And Jesus is our leader. And suddenly he says, you're not all clean. You're not. And it seems that the disciples did not know who that person was. Jesus would clearly told them, if you look over in verse 26, he said, It is he who I give the sop. But look at verse 27. It says, After the sop, Satan entered into him. And Jesus says, What you do, do quickly. And uh, verse 28 says, Now no man at the table knew for what intent he, intent he spake this unto, the, unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. They still didn't get it. Even after Jesus plainly said, It's the guy I'm giving the sop to. They did not get it. They're still wondering, which of us aren't clean? Would that trouble you at all? If I got up here today and say, one of you guys are a traitor. I can't do that. But that make you think, wouldn't it? Which one is it? All right, another thing that troubled them, look at verse 21. Jesus now says, one of you are going to betray me. I'm sorry, I'm wrong about that. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified, and he said, one of you will, be, will betray me. The point I wanted to get here is that Jesus, it says, was troubled himself. All right? Now, how do you feel if you yourself are a little on the troubled side, and maybe you're with another person, and this person that you're with, you're leaning pretty heavy on because he's kind of, a, of an in-control kind of a person, and he understands the situation. So you're leaning pretty hard on this person to get you through this situation, whatever it may be. And suddenly you sense this person is a little unsure of himself. Um, I had a little bit of an uh, experience like that in Honduras 12, 13 years ago or whatever. So, you know, we're driving around there. You can't speak to anybody because everybody speaks in Spanish, you know, and Suddenly we were a little lost. Well, my father-in-law is kind of an in-control type of person. He was, you know. But suddenly I sensed he, he was kind of lost too. We, we were both kind of lost. We had no idea, uh, you know, where, where we were. And we're looking for oceans and things like this. And, you know, you stop and ask somebody. And you do the whole sign language thing. And it just isn't working. Well, you know, it didn't give me a real great feeling to think that the person that was in control was suddenly a little troubled too. That, that didn't do much for me. And I have, I have a feeling that's the same way here. These disciples were sensing that Jesus was a little troubled. It'd be a little like parents and children. Uh, if a child senses the parent is troubled, that doesn't do much for the child. Look at verse 33. Little children, let yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. 
So now I say to you. That's some pretty terrifying information. Jesus was going somewhere that he couldn't come and they couldn't find him. And he said, as I said unto the Jews, well, up to this point at least, the Jews were kind of one set of people and the disciples were another set of people, kind of the inside circle, and anywhere Jesus went, they went with him. Suddenly Jesus is saying, you're going to be like the Jews now. You're not going to be able to come where I'm, where I'm going. Uh, you know, this, this is troubling. And then, to uh, top it off, in verse 34 and 35, he gives them a veiled assignment that they are now going to have to take some responsibility that had previously been Jesus's. He says, I'm going to give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this, all men shall know you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. Up to this point, people knew they were Jesus' disciples because they were where Jesus was. They followed him around, okay? But they kind of got into their little squabbles. They wanted to be great. They wanted to do this. You know, they had their little inside conflicts. But suddenly he said, you're going to have to start acting like me. And, and people are going to know you're like me because you act like me, not because you're just right with me. Things are going to change now. I think that troubled them. I think they knew that they had a lot of growing to do, a lot of things to change. This leads Peter to ask the question in verse uh, 37. Peter said unto him, Lord, why? Why can't I follow you? Why can't I? I will go so far as to lay down my life for you. Why can't I participate in your departure? Haven't I identified with you, Jesus? Haven't I followed you around? Haven't I been one of the inside circle? Haven't I heeded your beck and call and preached and testified and so much that the devils listened to us? Haven't I entrusted my family to God's providence so I could trot around with you, Jesus, these last three years? Didn't I leave my nets? And now you're telling me I can't come or you're going? That's not fair. Why? Now you would think, I would, I would suspect that, G, that Peter... Uh, was looking for some accolades from Jesus. You know, he said, I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. I have a feeling he was expecting Jesus to say, thank you, Peter. Thank you for that. Come along. Come along with me. But what does Jesus say in verse 38? Will thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me twice, thrice. What do you think that did for Peter? Do you think that caused him any trouble? He had heard Jesus say, verily, verily, a few other times. And when Jesus said, verily, verily, it meant, verily, verily. All right? And he said, Peter, you don't know yourself. You're going to de deny me not once, not twice, but three times. I have a feeling Peter was rather troubled. But I have a feeling he was hurt. I really do. I think he figured, Jesus doesn't understand me. Jesus doesn't understand how much I care about him. These are the contextual reasons that I saw for troubled hearts. 
But how much of the non-contextual things were causing trouble to these, to these disciples? We know at least Peter had a wife. And I wouldn't doubt that a few other of the disciples, maybe most of them, had wives, perhaps families. I, I don't think that's wrong to assume that. Do you suppose that the fact that these men had chosen to follow Jesus and make some great sacrifices for Jesus caused any issues in their family at all? It's pure speculation, but I'm going to say that there is that chance. Um, perhaps, perhaps their children were rebuffed by their friends. You know, your daddy hangs out with that Jesus. He follows him around. You know, that's goofy. My daddy doesn't do that. That's just pure speculation. But I, I have, to, I have to, to wonder if there wasn't some of that going on. Perhaps some of them had ailing parents, other personal issues. We don't know, and it doesn't do much good to um, speculate, I guess. But I have, I have a feeling there's more to this story than what we have just written here. But pressures tend to accumulate, and we come preoccupied to the point that we almost get lost in the sea of trouble that sinks down to our hearts and affects us adversely. So now let's look at Jesus' answer for troubled hearts here in chapter 14. I think Jesus sensed these disciples' need for encouragement, and he was ready to do that. Look at verse 1. So he starts this exposition off by saying, Let not your heart be troubled. Such a, such a familiar phrase in the Bible that I think we, we fail to grasp the depth of it. What I get out of this is that troubled hearts are largely a choice. Largely. We have trouble in this world. There's no doubt about that. But to allow that to affect our hearts is our choice. And Jesus said, don't let it affect your heart. Don't let your heart be troubled. You can't change the circumstances. We know that worry will not gain us a thing. In fact, Jesus, he, he talked about this at one time. He said, which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to your stature? Now, if you want to exercise a futility, stand in the front of the mirror this afternoon and worry yourself one inch higher. See how that goes for you. It won't go real well, will it? We know that troubled hearts are hard on us physically and emotionally and spiritually. So we can choose to accept this reality and not let it bother us, or we can, we can choose to reject that and just go ahead and worry. I would like to challenge each of us, including myself, make a choice today that we will not allow anxiety to ruin our ability to serve the Lord well this next year. Another thing here, another answer Jesus has to troubled hearts, he says, ye believe in God. Let not your heart be troubled because ye believe in God. Now what does that mean? How does that help troubled hearts? Well, think about what all that entails by believing in God. Dennis did very well last Sunday at telling us some of those things. We have a creator that understands our circumstances far more than we do. He has a perspective of the future that we don't have. He has, a, he has an understanding of us that we don't even have. To him, nations are a drop in the bucket. We also have the promise that he remembers that we're dust. He remembers that. 
So when we think of those things, then we read the verse in Psalm 37 that says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Now you think about Job and his trouble. Let's go back to Job for a minute. The steps of Job were ordered by the Lord. And those are steps, and that is some backstory that we have in that account that we don't have in our own stories. We don't know what's happening in the terrestrial realms when it comes to our story and our way, our steps. But we can know one thing, they're ordered of the Lord. And we also know that because Job's steps were ordered of the Lord, things turned out very well for Job. And they will for you and I as well. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, and whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. My, my, my. So we have troubled hearts. Let's remember this. Another thing Jesus says here is he says, you believe in God, so believe in me too. Believe also in me. Jesus had been teaching these disciples for the last three years about how he and the Father were one. And now he's saying, get that, take that, take that to heart. I am the Father. So if you believe in God, believe in me. We're the same. While God had to be understood by faith, had never been seen Physically, Jesus is now reassuring them that I'm God in the flesh. Believe in me. Let's remember that as we believe in Christ, as we are faced with things in life, Christ was too. Um, we have the uh, familiar verse in Isaiah 53 that he is, dis- he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus understands sorrow. He understands trouble. He was there. Let's look to Jesus in 2016 as the, uh, as the help that we get from an elder brother. All right, another thing that Jesus points out here, another answer he has for troubled hearts He says, in my father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. You know, a house represents something very special, and especially our own house, our father's house, okay? There's just absolutely no place like home. That's an old phrase we use, but that's true. There's just no place quite like home. It's a place where we can relax. It's a place we're familiar with. We're familiar with the people around it. It's a place where we regain energy. You know, I could, I could come to one of your houses um, today for dinner, and we could have a good time, a very good time. We could be even, uh, to a degree, I would say, uh, refreshed. But I will say this, I wouldn't be as relaxed as I was if I'm around my, at my own dinner table with my own wife and family. I'm just more relaxed there, all right? I, you know, honest confession again, I guess. But it's also a place of identity. It's what do we identify with? We love the sights, and sounds, and smells of home. As a matter of fact, we can't even smell our own house. Did you know what? Every house has a smell. It does. But we don't smell our own house because it's so familiar to us that it's just us. It's just my house. We don't, we don't smell it. 
Jesus assures them that there's many mansions. Everybody has his own room. There's many. There's plenty. In today's world, we don't maybe identify with that quite as much as we would if we lived in other parts of the world or in a different time era. Um, most of us have adequate living conditions. But to a person, perhaps the disciples even, they had the reassurance that this was not going to be a squalor house that was being prepared. There was going to be plenty of room, no cramped facilities. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, that word prepare actually would carry the idea of decorate. I go to decorate a place for you. It won't just be utility facilities. It will be decorated for you. This fact has been propelling Christians for millennia, the fact that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.1, he says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And then the Hebrew writer says, in Hebrews 11, as he finishes up there, he goes, but now they desire a better country. That isn't heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. A big part of home is the fact that we are around familiar people. How well do you know your father? How well do you know your brothers and sisters in the Lord. I think that will make a difference as to how much we will look forward to that mansion that we're going to. Revelation 21 3 says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Part of what makes home home is the fact that mom and dad are there, everybody's there. That's home. And that's part of the home we're going to as well. Another thing Jesus pointed out here that's an answer to troubled hearts, he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. He's assuring them that he's being completely honest with them and he's giving them any pertinent information that they need to make this journey. I don't know about you, but I like people that are honest. I like people that I sense are not withholding information from me that I should know. There's probably nothing worse than somebody that is not trustworthy and you sense is withholding information from you. Jesus assures us that this is taking place. However, Peter also says that in the last days, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to scoff and say, really? Is that really happening? I really don't know if I believe that. Where are we at today? Sure, we believe that Jesus is preparing this place for us. We believe it because he told us so. But you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're such in-the-moment people. But I had to ask myself, is that what really propels me? Is that what, if, is, that what is propelling me in the 2016? The fact that it is one more mile marker in my journey to that heavenly home. Is that what is keeping me going? All right, another answer that Jesus has here. He says, and if I go, I'm coming again. I'm going to receive you to myself. Notice the word he's going to receive us to himself. He doesn't say I'm going to come and take you along back. He says, I'm going to receive you to myself. 
Now this may be a little bit imagination here, but I think there's something different between uh, showing up at a person's house, if you will, or being received into a person's house. I like when I get to the, get the feeling that somebody has me over because they really want to be with me. Uh, not because it's, you know, their name is on the deal to, you know, have company today. That's okay, too. But I like, I like the idea that they want me to be there. I want to be received. Imagine the music that was to these disciples' ears. I'm going away, but I am coming back. I'm going to receive you. I'm going to take you along home with me. I think that was music to their ears. I think it's music to our ears, too, today. We then move on to the dialogue that he has with Thomas. And um, Thomas says to him, he says, well, he, he starts out in verse 4, he says, You know where I'm going, and you know the way. Thomas says, Time out. That's not right. I don't know where you're going, and I don't know the way. And Jesus then says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. So who was right here? Peter had the same question in the previous chapter. He said, I don't know where you're going. Thomas says the same thing. I don't know where you're going. How can you say that I know when I don't? And Jesus said, you do know where I'm going. So who was right? Was it Peter or Thomas or Jesus? Of course, Jesus was right. But I think uh, we have a group of people here that are misguided in their thinking that it was more of an issue, I think, here of accepting the way than the fact that they did not know the way. They just were not, not accepting the way that Jesus was presenting to them. You know, they had heard Jesus teaching. They had read the prophets. They had a privilege of a close relationship with Jesus, an inside track. But they were a little like school children that are daydreaming and have preconceived ideas, and suddenly they're caught off guard that what they should have gotten, they had not gotten. So Jesus speaks to Thomas these familiar words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the way. You know, my instructions, my teaching that you've had to this point, and the acceptance of them are... As the, is, the, is the ultimate here. That's what I'm after. They had heard the Sermon on the Mount. They knew the way. They knew, they knew it was the truth. And they knew it was the life. So how does this dialogue quell troubled hearts? Jesus basically was saying, follow what you know. Follow the right way. You know, there is a road that Isaiah calls the highway of holiness. In Isaiah 35, it says, And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. And then Psalm 1.1 talks about another way. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. So there's a question here we have to ask. It's part of the troubled heart that we experience sometimes in our lives, simply self-inflicted, because we begin to second-guess the, the uh, wisdom of the highway of holiness, and we start to hang around in the way of sinners. Is that possible? Will that cause troubled hearts? 
I'm going to suggest that it does. You know, just for an example, Jesus over and over and over, again in the, in the Gospels, talks about the futility of chasing the almighty dollar to, to bring happiness. Over and over it's there, especially the Gospel of Luke. But you know what? Sometimes we think, maybe not. Maybe, maybe, there's, uh, maybe, there's not, maybe there, that's not completely valid. We maybe know that won't bring happiness, but we'll give it a try anyway. We'll, we'll hang around the way of sinners for a little bit and see if that won't work. Or sometimes we're enamored by the world's glittering entertainment. We know that won't really bring happiness. Jesus said it won't, but we'll try it anyway. And on and on it goes. We, we have these two ways. And Jesus said, I'm the way, and yet we choose to accept another way. Or we choose to try another way. Proverb writer says, There is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Too often we willingly trade the straight way for the reasonable way, and then we can't figure out why our hearts are troubled. Let's stick to the way. All right, a few more here. Verses 8 to 11, Jesus' answer to troubled hearts is shown in his patience. You know, Philip here, again, he's kind of like Thomas. He has some questions. And Jesus, almost, you almost sense some exasperation in Jesus when he's answering Philip. Because, have I been so long time with you and you still don't get it, Philip? Is that, is that it? But yet we see Jesus taking the time to explain it to Philip, even though Philip should have gotten it. He could have said, Philip, you should have gotten this a long time ago. Figure it out. But he didn't. He explained it to Philip when Philip needed it explained. Do I exasperate Jesus with my dull mind sometimes? think that's possible? My lack of understanding? I'm comforted today with Jesus' patience. He sure has been patient with me. And I trust you can sense that in your life as well. The divine presence... Or, I'm sorry, the, divine, the promise of divine power to perform divinely appointed tasks or another comfort I see Jesus giving here. In verse 12, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth in me, the works that I shall do, he, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Now, it's interesting to me that that word works in the... Uh, the first word there, he that believeth will be the works that I do. That word works means not so much miracles as it means labor or toil or deeds. Just plain work. And if you notice, the second word works is italicized, which means that in the original writing, it wasn't there. Sometimes we read over this real fast and we say, well, you know, it would seem to me that we should be doing bigger things than Jesus did, Right? Well, not really. If you, if, you, if you look at it and you analyze it a bit, what Jesus is saying here is our works aren't necessarily going to be miracles, per se. But the reason we're going to be able to do more works is because as time progresses, I mean, how many people are we today? Maybe a hundred or whatever? We ought to be able to get more, more things done than one person, right? Or 13 people. So just the sheer volume of people that join the kingdom of God will make the possibility of greater works, more things happening. That army that uh, is dedicated and cannot be stopped. So I encourage us. Let's put our shoulder to the wheel. Let's do 
the uh, greater works that Jesus calls us to. And the last one I have here is uh, in verses 13 and 14. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. That seems like a pretty big promise, doesn't it? It reminds me a little bit of uh, what they call umbrella insurance. You know, so you take out insurance for this and that and the other thing. But if you really want to, you can buy umbrella insurance. And that covers everything. Well, this sort of is the capstone of the uh, first 14 verses. Remember, you have me. You have prayer. That, th- that's kind of what pulls this whole thing together. Anything in my name. Do we understand the high esteem that God puts on his name and his eagerness to guard it and promote it? I think if we could grasp that, um, it, would, it would do something for us today. Perhaps sometimes our prayers are not answered, not so much because we don't ask, but because we don't ask properly. We don't ask in a way that will glorify God's name. We don't, we don't grasp the... the, um, the um, cause that we should be uh, we should be promoting Jesus wants to show his name strong in the world today he wants to do it through you and me and he has promised us this avenue of prayer let's not underestimate this potential I think this will give us real confidence in this troubled world that we live I'd like to close with um, Paul's admonition to the Corinthians He goes like this. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Now, I like these next two verses. It says, For our light affliction, our light affliction, our easy trouble, in other words, which is but for a moment. It's just momentary. That's all. It's easy trouble and it's just momentary. And it worketh for us a far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. Now that word exceeding in the Greek is where we get our word hyperbole. Okay? It's in other words, it's just an extravagant exaggeration. But he says, this light affliction is actually what works this exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not, or we do not aim at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Folks, where are you and I aiming today? What is our trajectory? What causes us trouble? I think our look here at John 14 should be an encouragement to us. Let's just not let our hearts be troubled. We have good reason not to this morning.